Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm your host, Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. I'm mostly taking a break from podcasting until January when season three will begin, but I didn't want to miss the opportunity to share a timely conversation that took place in November at Doc NYC. I went to Harvard Law School, and when I was at Harvard Law School, I didn't want anybody to know that I started my education in a colored school. I thought it would disadvantage me. I thought people would see that as a deficit. I didn't talk to people about being the great-grandson of enslaved people. I just thought that was not going to help me cope in this environment, which I was sort of insecure about being in in the first place. And what I've learned over the last decades is that for us to get free, for us to make progress, uh, everybody I talk to now has to hear me talk about starting my education in a colored school. I want them to know I'm the great grandson of enslaved people, and I want to resurrect this history that we have ignored or denied, or worse, distorted. That's Brian Stevenson, the author of the memoir, Just Mercy, about his legal work with death row prisoners. He's prominently featured in Ava DuVernay's documentary, 13th. Her film traces how American slavery evolved into other abusive systems, leading to today's mass incarceration. Stevenson joined a Doc NYC panel called American Histories, exploring three recent films that bring fresh light to race in America. This conversation took place three days after Donald Trump's surprise victory. Another panelist was Raoul Peck, who directed I Am Not Your Negro, based on the writings of James Baldwin. You know, basically, we don't know our own history. And, and that's what we are witnessing today. And I've seen uh, a lot of pundits saying uh, since uh, two days, you know, oh, they are angry. And that's why, you know, we should care. We should hear them. But the problem is when black people have been angry or Indians, they kill them. Rounding out the conversation was Ezra Edelman, director of OJ Made in America. The thing about this story is where we're sitting now with this election is that, you know, for anybody who's seen the film, you know, look at what happens to OJ at the end of this film, that you still have people coming up to him and wanting to touch him, wanting to shake his hand, wanting to get his autograph. Why? Because he's famous. Because he was on, t- even when he was on trial for murder every single night, he was on TV. And I think that speaks to the sort of the celebrification of our culture that allows someone like Trump to walk through the door because in the same way he has been in our consciousness for the last 35 years, doesn't matter what he's been doing. On this episode of Pure Nonfiction, we bring you their full conversation that covers race, history, Trump, and documentary. To begin, I asked Brian Stevenson about his expectations when he was interviewed for 13th. Well, I was really thrilled. I mean, Ava's an incredibly talented filmmaker, uh, as she showed in in Selma. Uh, But I've been very frustrated because I think that we haven't done a very good job in this country in confronting uh, the fact that we're not really free, that we are still burdened by our history. And we haven't taken the time to talk about the legacy of being a post-genocide society. I mean, I think that we are a post-genocide country. When white settlers came to this continent, millions of native people were slaughtered by the millions. And we haven't talked about that. We, what we did instead is create a narrative of racial difference. 
And that narrative was, for me, the great evil of American slavery. I don't think the great evil of American slavery was involuntary servitude or forced labor. I believe it was the ideology of white supremacy that we created to legitimate slavery. And the 13th Amendment doesn't really deal with that. It talks about involuntary servitude and forced labor, uh, but it doesn't talk about this narrative of racial difference. And because of that, I don't think slavery ended in 1865. I think it evolved. And then we have 100 years of American history where this narrative of racial difference manifests itself in brutal ways, lynching and racial terror, uh, segregation, and now mass incarceration. And so for me, it becomes important to engage in storytelling that challenges the real threat that we face. I think the North won the Civil War, but the South won the narrative war. We did not demand from the South a repudiation of white supremacy. We want an end to lynching in the 1940s and 50s, but the South won the narrative war about the legitimacy of lynching. We won the passage of the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act in 1965, but the South won the narrative war about the legitimacy of resisting racial equality. And today there is a presumption of dangerousness and guilt that gets assigned to black and brown people that is now manifest in this record level of incarceration and stop and frisk and police violence. And because we haven't talked about this narrative and we haven't acknowledged that we've never really made progress, uh, this week we see the election of someone who has comfortably used that narrative of racial difference to gain power. So I think we need to create more tools, uh, more media that gets us to honestly confront what it means to have never really repented for slavery or genocide or terrorism, or segregation, or mass incarceration. And that's part of what I think Ava was trying to get at. And first you have to educate, and I think this film does some of that. But then you have to motivate. You have to actually feel some of that anguish. And I like the way she uh, integrated so many different perspectives to give you know, some voice to, to that pain that many of us feel when we constantly have to navigate. My birthday's Monday, I'm about, you know, about to turn 57, and, I, and I'm really starting to feel weary from having to overcome the presumptions of dangerousness and guilt that get assigned to me. And I'm somebody with a law degree, I've argued cases, I'm a professor and all of that, and I still have to navigate uh, the presumptions of dangerousness and guilt, and that burden, which isn't just a burden on black and brown people, but on all of us, is part of what I hope this film helps us start thinking about more critically. Raoul Peck follows up the point about American history beginning with genocide by invoking James Baldwin. And Baldwin has been one of the few people who have seen through that false and flaw history, that the history don't start with slavery, it started with a massacre. And this massacre have been totally put under the carpet. And uh, so we, we are living into with totally different history uh, and totally false history. Uh, when we are talking about a free country, I'm sorry, but the first free country of the Americas is Haiti. And they make where you were born, where I was born, and briefly served as minister of culture. Uh, yes, uh, everybody makes mistake, <laughs> but um, but Haiti is the first territory where slaves uh, fought against the armies of Napoleon, of the British, of the Spanish uh, armies, and they create a nation, a nation where the soldiers of those of that nation, sixty percent of them, were born in Africa. And they create a free nation, the first Haitian constitution, 1804, stated that any fugitive who set foot on Haiti 
is a Haitian and a free man or a free woman. And this revolution has been totally erased. The United States took 65 years to recognize Haiti as an independent country. So that's the same narrative that they just uh, uh, kept uh, unknown to our own people. You know, basically we don't know our own history. And, and that's what we are witnessing today. And I've seen uh, a lot of pundits saying uh, since uh, two days, you know, oh, they are angry. And that's why, you know, we should care, we should hear them. But the problem is when black people have been angry or Indians, they killed them. You know, they, they didn't want the election. They were killed. All our leadership were killed. And that's the story continuing. This election, I'm not afraid of whatever happened because for us, the fight will just continue and we have no choice. So our anger, we learn how to organize. There, was, there have been many movements, civil rights movement, Black Panther, uh, Black Muslim, all these organizations, today Black uh, Lives Matters. You know, we have found ways, intelligent ways to fight that uh, system and that uh, void of history. Uh, and, and it will continue. When it comes to bringing fresh perspective to American history, one of the year's most discussed films is O.J. Made in America. I'm not talking about the fictionalized series, but the documentary that was broadcast by ESPN lasting seven and a half hours. That epic scope allowed director Ezra Edelman to fit O.J. Simpson's story into a bigger context of race relations. I asked Edelman about his process that enabled him to take a familiar story and show a different side. From a content standpoint, it was taking what seemed to be the thing that was put in front of us all the time, which is, here's a guy that was put on trial in 1994 for murder, and everyone's fixation on whether he did it or didn't do it, and sort of, and the media um, sort of narrative that took hold, and the media fixation fascination that took hold, and the way I am in terms of when something um, becomes saturated in our culture that way, I tend to tune out. And so for me, having um, already had an understanding of who OJ was is culturally, as an athlete, predating um, 1994, 95, I really understood that when you even looked at the, the landscape in which he came to be famous in 1967, going to USC from San Francisco, having grown up in the projects, what USC as a school was in that place and time, where it was located next to Watts, which had burned in violence a year and a half before. Um, when you looked at what the story became in 94, 95, it was clear that it had very clear roots and antecedents in this place and time that OJ came to be. And this sort of toxic mix of his quest for celebrity and his quest to be deracialized in many ways in terms of how he wanted the world to see him versus what was going on next door to him as he was becoming this football hero, this American celebrity, those were the things that got me engaged with telling this story and understanding that there was a much bigger American narrative um, to be told beyond did he do it. Brian, yeah, you just literally stepped off a plane from uh, North Carolina, and, and after this, you're getting on a plane to go to Washington, D.C. You've worked in the South for a great deal of, of your career. You know, what have you learned about trying to tell your story t uh, in communities that you know might not get it I instantly? 
Well, I, th I think we just have to be more courageous. Uh, you know, uh, I'm the great grandson of enslaved people. I started my education in a colored school when I was a little boy. Black children could not go to the public school in my county. Uh, and then lawyers came in and made it possible for me to go uh, to the public school. I graduated from high school. I went to college. I went to Harvard Law School. And when I was at Harvard Law School, I didn't want anybody to know that I started my education in a colored school. I thought it would disadvantage me. I thought people would see that as a deficit. I didn't talk to people about being the great grandson of enslaved people. I just thought that was not going to help me cope in this environment, which I was sort of insecure about being in in the first place. And what I've learned over the last decades is that for us to get free, for us to make progress, uh, everybody I talk to now has to hear me talk about starting my education in a colored school. I want them to know I'm the great grandson of enslaved people, and I want to resurrect this history that we have ignored or denied, or worse, distorted. And for me, that's the challenge. I live in a state, Alabama, where Jefferson Davis's birthday is a state holiday, where Confederate Memorial Day is a state holiday. In Alabama today, we do not have Martin Luther King Day. We have Martin Luther King slash Robert E. Lee Day. Our two largest high schools are Robert E. Lee High and Jefferson Davis High. We have 59 markers and monuments to the Confederacy in downtown Montgomery until three years ago, not a word about slavery. And if that's your reality, then these outcomes, these election outcomes, and this rhetoric that we're now hearing more broadly is not a surprise. And so for me, it becomes necessary to challenge that. So we're building a museum called uh, From Enslavement to Mass Incarceration. We've put up markers in downtown Montgomery that talk about the slave trade with, against great resistance. Uh, we're building a national memorial to victims of lynching. We have a project to put markers at every lynching site in America. I don't think you should be able to go anywhere in this country without knowing whether you're near a place where lynchings or the slave trade was active. I think the Trail of Tears ought to be sacred in America. I don't think there should be interstates and cars just casually driving past that place. And so for me, it really is gathering the forces and I like Raoul's point about organizing, because that's the way you do it, to begin to boldly tell our stories, our history truthfully. Because I think we're all burdened by it. It's not just black people, but all of us. You know, white people in the American South in the 19th century got comfortable seeing black children in chains, seeing black people raped and brutalized, seeing black people denigrated. You got comfortable with that. And when you live your life and are allowed to be comfortable with those kinds of things, something really bad happens to you. We got comfortable posing for pictures under the bodies of hanged, murdered people of color who had done nothing wrong. We got comfortable with that. We got comfortable watching black people go into inferior bathrooms and water fountains. We got comfortable. We've gotten comfortable with mass incarceration. So we've got to free the people who have been uh, corrupted by this disease, which actually makes them think that that's human, that's normal, that's healthy. It's not. And so for me, it's about courage, finding our voice, that's what I love about these films, is that there's something courageous about them. They're not the kind of films that people uh, encourage you to make. They're not the kinds of films that platforms are encouraged to show. But they're the kinds of films and narratives that I think are essential if this nation is going to get healthy, if we're going to become a free nation. And for me, it's all about that. I mean, I've been representing disfavored, condemned people. I've been spending a lot of time on death row with the worst of the worst, the hated, the most despised, and the upside to that that you develop a lot of courage. You don't worry about what people say about you. You don't worry about what people think. You don't worry whether you're going to be popular or not. And I think, for me, that's key as we move forward in trying to liberate this locked history and make it accessible.
let's see how much applause this gets. Raul, you said you're not worried about this election. Can you elaborate on that? I'm not worried in the sense that I feel like maybe America will understand what's have been going on for centuries here. Maybe. Uh, because I, I already see the spin doctors trying to arrange the narrative so that it can continue. Uh, I said for myself that I'm not worried. And I watch because what's going on. you live in on. France. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not, I pay taxes here. So, um, no, it's, uh, it's about seeing what's happening in the world. Uh, we had a Berlusconi in Italy. We have a Le Pen uh, coming up probably in the next election in France. We've seen those walls being erected throughout Europe. Uh, I've seen when I was um, 18, 20, I saw how traveling to every country in Europe where I needed visa when 20 years before as a Haitian, because Haiti is an old republic and had convention with the whole world. With my Haitian passport, I could travel the whole world. And I saw as I grew up all those frontiers being shut down. And uh, the same here, uh, the same thing here. You know, we saw our leader being executed. Uh, we felt that anger that we feel every day, whether you are, you have a diploma from Howard, Yale, or Princeton, you know, but once you start getting in the subway, your life is in the balance. And there is what we call now, recently I heard the, the name is like soft racism. You know, you enter a room or with, you know, I, I'm sure that happened to, to all of you. You are in the dark street evening. There is an old white lady on the sidewalk. You make sure you change the side because you don't want to scare her. Or an elevator. It happened to me not getting in an elevator with, with a, a woman alone, a white woman. Not that because I'm scared or any. It's just I want to make her comfortable. You know. So that's that's something you deal with every single day. So the whole rhetoric about uh, uh, you know uh, Trump and the whole rhetoric about white male uneducated or lower middle class man in America being angry. I'm sorry. Grow up. You know, grow up. As we're going back to this question of being able to communicate across a divide, I feel like one of the advantages, if that's a word, of a film like OJ is that it's about sports and everyone can uh, uh, access uh, or at least many different communities can access a story about sports that might not access something that's more overtly political. And I wonder if you've experienced that. I mean, OJ, the vehicle through which he became famous was through sports. And that is something that we all, and that made him the complicated figure that he ended up being. That he became a sports hero, and then an actor, then a celebrity. But at all times, he was someone because he came up through that, um, through an area that black people and white people uh, uniformly engage and enjoy. And he did not have to suffer the same indignities um, that others did because yes, white people absorb our, our athletic heroes black in the same way that 
black people do in America. And so I think from a starting off standpoint, sports being the great equalizer also was this thing that I think allowed OJ to dilute himself as far as the path he ended up taking. And where we got to with him as a cultural figure speaks to you know, how we treat our sports heroes, the sense of entitlement that set in, the sense of feeling that he was universally loved and appreciated by, by everyone equally. And so I think that fundamentally is the sort of the place where sports plays a profound role um, in this. But I think that the idea that he also came of age when he did at a time when there were a movement of black, there was a movement of black athletes preceding him that did understand the country they were living in and did try to use their platform um, to speak out and to um, you know, evoke some sort of change. And that OJ, because of um, already his being susceptible to the, the light over here, the money, the fame, what could be on the other side, he was allowed to willingly be seduced into this other path. And the problem is the damage that he caused is that he created a whole, he was a pioneer in creating a genre, a, a sort of a group of people who went off into that same place and said, it's okay not to be political. It's okay not to be outspoken. It's okay to sort of have, you know, these false gods of, of money and fame and, and, you know, wealth ultimately. And that's the, that's the sort of cautionary tale. And I mean, look, the thing about this story is where we're sitting now with this election is that, you know, for anybody who's seen the film, you know, look at what happens to OJ at the end of this film, that you still have people coming up to him and wanting to touch him, wanting to shake his hand, wanting to get his autograph. Why? Because he's famous. Because he was on, t even when he was on trial for murder every single night, he was on TV. And I think that speaks to the sort of, the celebrification of our culture that allows someone like Trump to walk through the door because in the same way he has been in our consciousness for the last 35 years, doesn't matter what he's been doing, just means that he's been on our TVs in front of us. And I think that does seduce a lot of people into thinking that he is a friendlier character than he actually is, a character without knowing who the real person is. I mean, one of the things I, I loved about OJ's, the OJ film is, and, and the way Ezra dealt with it is that it actually shows the way we sometimes delude ourselves when it comes to race and identity in this country and how we pretend that if we give people of color a space here where they can be cheered and admired, that that somehow means that even though we will not give them that space in the places of power and responsibility, that we're fair people. And it respond, and I'm just I'm just reflecting on what Ezra just said because again I live in Alabama, and of course in Alabama college football is like religion, and the one thing that the state of Alabama can legitimately be incredibly proud of is this very dominant, very successful football team, and of course everybody cheers for that team. The perversity is for me is that Alabama has a state constitution that prohibits black and white kids from going to school together. The language of the state constitution still prohibits black and white kids from going to school together. And the reason why the state constitution still does that is, to, is because to change the state constitution requires a statewide referendum. And nobody has been willing to try to take it out until 2004 when the, when the legislature said, okay, put it on the ballot, let's take this out of the state constitution, because other states were beating Alabama up when they were competing for like the next car manufacturing company. And they put it on the ballot, and in 2004, because nobody was prepared to talk about this history honestly, 
the majority of people, 53% of the people in the state of Alabama voted to keep that language in. Most of them would then go cheer this predominantly black football team at the University of Alabama. They put it back on the ballot in 2012, an even higher percentage, which is a reaction to the election of Barack Obama, voted to keep in the language that prohibits black and white kids from going to school together. But because they then go to Alabama and cheer these all black players, they don't think that implicates their attitudes and their opinions about race. And we use sports, and I think, and celebrity and culture and music and entertainment as a way of, dilute, of, of, of diluting ourselves into thinking that because we like rap music, that means we can't be racist. Because we cheered for Beyonce, because we cheered for Stevie Wonder, because we cheered for somebody like Sidney Poitier, that means we're not racist. When at the same time, what we're doing is creating little comfortable spaces where they don't threaten our security. On that football field, you don't have to worry about being hurt unless you get on the football field. When they're on the stage, you don't have to worry about being hurt. And that kind of that kind of uh, delusion, that kind of manipulation of the narrative is part of what I think we have to see. And that's what I like about OJ. It starts to pull away, deconstruct that delusion. And I think we have to do that if we're going to really honestly understand where we are in this country. Brian, uh, you're a storyteller in the courtroom and you're a storyteller in your uh, work as an advocate trying to raise larger issues. Can you talk about some of the strategies that you've developed to, you know, to tell a story to to someone, whether it's a jury or a judge, who you know coming into the situation is has a 180 degree different perspective on it than you do? Yeah, well, I think if you're trying to change things, you have to be willing to go where people are. You can't just say, "This is the truth. This is my truth. I'm going to scream it." And I'm, I'm going to demand that you come and, and hear it and experience it. Sometimes I feel like that. There are moments when I think for many people who are marginalized where you need to be able to do exactly that. But when you get past that moment, if you've decided that you want to change things, then you have to do something else. You actually have to go where people are. Uh, as, a, as a lawyer trying to persuade people, I, you know, when you do capital work, only people who believe in the death penalty get to serve on capital trial juries. If you're against the death penalty, you're excluded. So you're in a room of people who are fundamentally not where you are when you're trying to talk about these issues. So you do have to go where they are. But you have to go where they are, I think, tactically, strategically. And you have to be willing to move them. And sometimes you move them by getting them to recognize hypocrisy. Sometimes you move them by getting them to recognize that if they stay where they are, things are going to get worse for them too. Sometimes you move them by just persuading them that you can't be a Christian, you can't be a human, you can't be decent and stay where you are. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote my book and it's about uh, a crime. One of the main stories is a, is a murder that takes place in Monroeville, Alabama. It's an innocent African-American man who spends years on death row for a crime he clearly didn't commit. And uh, I was telling somebody I was going to write this book and, and Monroeville is the community where Harper Lee grew up and wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. If you go to that community, they love To Kill a Mockingbird. The streets are named after characters in the books. The delis are all named after characters in the books. There's Boo Radley Drive and Atticus Hall, you know, High Interstate, all that kind of stuff. And someone said, well, if you're going to talk about that, please don't talk about To Kill a Mockingbird. Please don't try to make people feel bad about living in the community where they celebrate To Kill a Mockingbird and caring nothing about this innocent black man. I said, I have to talk about that. And maybe if we begin to understand some tension in that story, it, it, it's like what Raul was saying. I read the book, I think it's a beautiful book, 
but I relate it to Tom Robinson who dies in prison from hopelessness. And that means I wasn't prepared. I didn't want to be called Atticus Finch. Atticus Finch is a failure to me. His client was convicted and died in prison of hopelessness. That's not the kind of lawyer I want to be. But it's only when we create a narrative of him being courageous against some of the other sentiments that we say, oh, that's a hero. So I think we have to push people to go beyond it. But I think you go where people are and you begin to push them. And you try to persuade them that we are in it together. And then the one thing, because our country is so punitive, for me, the strategy, I have to make sure everybody understands that I'm not interested in punishment. I think one of the reasons why we don't talk about our history of genocide and slavery and terrorism and segregation is that we're such a punitive society. I think a lot of people in this country feel like if we start talking about that and they're white, they're going to be punished. Mm -hmm. And as somebody who spends his time defending people who've done really bad things, I want to be able to credibly say to them, I'm not interested in punishing America for its history. I want to liberate us. And so if I assure you that there's no punishment on the other side, there's something liberating, something empowering, freeing, uh, then can we please talk honestly about this history? And that is the challenge that oppressed people face, I think, all over the world, is to, is to kind of persuade their oppressors that if we get to freedom and equality, we're not going to oppress you because you oppressed us. That's the power of Dr. King and all of those who embraced nonviolence, is that they offered something better than what they had experienced. And that's something we have to find ways to salute and to embrace and to encourage and to reward, uh, which is why I think these stories do have to be told in a really powerful way. I have one question for you because um, I, I totally agree with you and, and you, you uh, brilliantly tell the ambivalence of those two sides. You know, the one side you have to talk, you have to educate, you have to go inside the system and work with it and turn it over with his own instrument. At the same time, we have seen many great people who have done that and have been killed or have been discouraged or have been, you know, uh, commit suicide even. And and I feel like it's, you know, you know, it's a, almost a martyr, you know, to do that kind of work. And and the work in front of us is so huge. The ignorance is so huge. And we are faced with people who not only don't try to learn their own history, because we had to earn our own history and also theirs and everybody else. And we are carrying those two heavy loads. And on the other side, you have people that have become lazy in their situations. Uh, and when you are on that side of the barrier, you don't need to, to fight because it's there. You don't need to fight for anything because you have that privilege already. So at the level of what's happening here, when you see, how do you go in into the press right now? You know, you see that there is this obligation of having, when you have six people uh, in front uh, of the camera, you need to have at least three uh, who gives the counter to whatever you're saying. But they don't care. The way they give their response, you know, you have to the job to deconstruct what they are saying before you can, you know, voice anything positive and constructive. This is hard. And they ask that of us every single day. And, you know, uh, 
the question is how do you face that? I mean, we can write books, we can make films, yeah. but I feel that it's so minimal what we are bringing, you know? And, and so that's why sometimes I understand when I see young people in the streets wanting to burn everything down. I don't, I don't push to that. I, I, don't, I don't think it's the right way, but I see where it comes from. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think you've articulated exactly the heart of the struggle. And I can say, at least for me, it is necessary that I be able to stand in a space where I don't have to be tactical and strategic. You know, I grew up in the church and, and the rawness and the passion and the emotion of the kind of black gospel music that I listened to, that I participated in a child was a necessary kind of psychic reality for me. Because in that space, you didn't have to be strategic and tactical. You didn't have to pretend. You gave voice in this raw emotional way to your suffering and your anguish and the humiliation and the power of black art historically has been to create these pockets. So when I listen to Miles Davis and I listen uh, to the blues and I listen to so many of our great artists, uh, they're not trying to do something uh, to change the way other people think about them. They're trying to give voice to these realities that we have experienced. And I step into that space and it is therapeutic for me to hear it and to feel it and to express it. And then I can go into some other spaces and have that moment. But I don't feel like I'm relieved of the obligation if I've got some skills now, if I've got some strength now, if I've got a song to sing now, of not using those skills and that strength to create an environment where more people can get to a place of liberation, closer to a place of liberation. And you're right, the consequences of that are frequently overwhelming. Uh, but I guess I think I'd rather fight to be free uh, than live with something that's not really freedom. You know, and, and, and I think that's the one amazing thing about, you know, people talk about Baldwin. I think Baldwin was a hopeful writer. People talk about his harsh reality and his criticism, but there was a hopefulness because that he man- He was a humanist. He was, and he had a, and that's the thing for me that's the remarkable part of the story is that we uh, can be hopeful in the face of so much ugliness. And I think that's because we have to be. I really do believe that hopelessness is the enemy of justice. And when you allow yourself to be hopeless, you become part of the problem. Injustice prevails where hopelessness persists. And so the hope is, is that we can take these skills and go into that complicated world and do enough, do a little bit to begin to move things. And things do move. Uh, we just have to do a lot more work. I mean, I wouldn't be sitting here if those lawyers hadn't worked the system to make them open up the public school so I could get a high school degree. I'm not confused about the fact that I wouldn't be here but for that activism in the system. But I do think you have to create a space where you can speak uh, truthfully and honestly in a space that feels sanctified uh, by the honesty of this history. Ezra, I want to ask you a question about uh, telling history. It feels like so often we get these great histories too long after the fact. Uh, several years ago at Doc NYC, we showed Ken Burns's and Central Park Five that he made with Sarah Burns and, and another colleague. And it was the first time that Central Park Five had all been together since they had been uh, in court. And that case always struck me because you know, it's one thing when you see, in, and I say this as a northerner, when you see an injustice taking place in the south, you think, well, of course that happens there. Like, uh, you know, they don't have a, a good press that's going to monitor that. Central Park Five took place in New York City, and everyone missed that story. And then it's only years later that we can get a good accounting uh, of that story. 
in the last couple of days as people have been wringing their hands over Donald Trump and our inability to see him for his history, I've heard people say, like, if only there had been an O.J. made in America about Donald Trump, so the, you know, the six-hour version of his story that would connect uh, the dots. Because I feel like one of the what's become clear to me in the last couple of days is a flaw in our journalism where we're looking at, like, what happened yesterday? Who said something yesterday? And we're not connecting the dots well enough. But I wonder, Ezra, in your experience making a film uh, about something that, you know, with 20 years hindsight, is is it just inevitable that you need to wait that long to to tell those kinds of stories? I would like to see Raul make that film. Um, I think you do. I mean, I think I actually think based on, I mean, how our culture has gone, it used to be, um, I think we would look at 40 years as the proper amount of time for um, to... Uh, go by before we could really take stock in terms of where we were. Um, and now I think because of the maybe the landscape we live in and there's so much, you know, we, with our short attention spans, maybe it's just become 20. And I do think that, um, sure, the story of, of Trump will, you know, benefit from two decades of, of living through whatever happens and to sort of really take stock and come to grips with how he was able to rise to the place uh, he he has gotten to but yeah that is i do think that is the benefit and the necessity of 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 historical storytelling and it's it's a shame that there is we actually don't have the 20 years to go by to explain this story it is that um necessary to understand now and i think everything that brian and raul is saying i mean i think you know on the one hand it's making sure that you know, I think I read something literally that I think David Remnick wrote 2.40 in the morning on the night of the election of saying, in a couple days, the media is going to sort of start to try to make you feel comfortable about where we're at, about what's happening, so we can just sort of um, feel okay and try to move forward. And I do think it's everyone's job to not get comfortable and to sort of be very cognizant of... of and. And, and from my standpoint, as someone who didn't have the experience that Brian had growing up, who does relatively come from privilege, it is my job to be vigilant, to check myself on a daily basis because I am susceptible to sort of existing in my small space and even from the standpoint of thinking that, well, okay, I do my part by telling stories that I feel like speak to some truth, but we could all do more every day. So um, I have no idea if I answered your question. Uh, there is a bigger picture that we, we didn't talk about, but which is also part of the problem, is that we talk about the media, but where does that come from? We forget that we had a president named Ronald Reagan who came to power and start breaking up all the major institutions which were against this system, basically any progressive institution. And that we, we had the uh, financial crisis, the petroleum crisis, and I remember very vividly when every company start laying off people, start uh, cutting costs at the cost of people, at the cost of service. I remember, uh, you know, there was a time in this country where you had a problem with your 
you know, uh, washing machine. You would call. They wouldn't even hesitate. Uh, we are coming. We are going to change your machine. Uh, today, you make a phone call. You, it takes you three hours to get somebody on the phone. Uh, and probably it's in Lebanon, uh, and et cetera, et cetera. And what happened in the press is that the big concentration, you know, newspapers, TVs became really money uh, 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 companies. People were afraid to be laid off. Journalists were afraid to lose their jobs. And we get into this era where it was never about really real news, but about entertainment. I saw this uh, evening news becoming more and more fun, more and more about daily crimes, about this. And we forget all this history, but that shapes our mind. Trump come from there. You know, we saw how, you know, remember when CNN came out as a news network. At the beginning, it was a great idea because they were responding to a need of real news. But then when they saw that the numbers were going down and there was competition, they start also having those pundits. I remember those matches when you had this uh, really far right guy and the so-called progressive guy. It was shooting matches. You know, and that become the, the rules. That become the, what you see everywhere on TV. That's when Fox News also started. And we forget that history. You know, that today uh, we, we prepare the Trump era, you know. So it, it's everything is connected. It's not just happen. It's not a matter of your your mood or we, we let it happen. It's, it's a whole system which is in place. Uh, as we get near the end of this conversation, I want to ask about Black Lives Matters, uh, which these films all come out against the backdrop of, even though I think they were probably all started uh, bef before that was even a, a known uh, phenomenon. And I wonder where, where you hope that movement will go. I mean, I should just start by saying, you know, I'm really uh, behind a lot of all of the young leaders. I, I consider them friends. We talk, we're colleagues and all of that. But I actually think that um, we, I think there are a lot of people who are asking questions about Black Lives Matter. And I just think it's, for me, it's the wrong question. I mean, what young people are trying to do is to get everybody else in this country to pay attention to realities that have been going on for decades. And, and the question is, are we going to pay attention to these larger realities? They're not asking you, this is the power of that movement. They're not asking you to pay attention to them. They're not asking you to know their names. They're not asking you to figure out what they're going to do next. They're asking you to actually look at issues like police violence, look at issues like mass incarceration. And so the real question is, are we going to look at police violence? Are we going to look at mass incarceration? And I've gotten to the point now when people start asking me about Black, black Lives Matter, saying, no, I don't think that's the right question. I think the question is, are we going to look at these institutions? Because the truth is, because in some ways, that's what that movement wants. And I think that's the real question. And, and it's like we're living in this moment, and I see you know, much of what kind of unifies all of these films is they're a reaction against the politics of fear and anger. And they've been going on for a long time. And you don't have to be Donald Trump to play and to manipulate the politics of fear and anger. You can also be Bill Clinton. 
Uh, you can also be uh, a Democratic elected mayor using the same kind of threat of violence uh, to create social control. And so the question really is, are we going to respond against the politics of fear and anger and actually start articulating something that sounds like compassion, that sounds like a commitment to equality and justice, that rejects the idea that everything is debatable? I really liked your point, Raul, about how when you facilitate debates about some things, it's always going to be a setback. If somebody says, let's debate whether the Holocaust was bad, I think it would be completely immoral to have that debate. But we're debating. Uh, issues that I don't think should be debatable. Is it acceptable to talk about banning Muslims? Is it really fair to call Mexicans? Right? And if we have debates like that, we are not going to make progress. And so we've got to find a way to give voice to kind of a moral core, kind of a, an, our, uh, kind of a vision of what it means to be American, what it means to reject the politics of fear and anger. And the best parts of activism, whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's undocumented people, whether it's dreamers, is that they're actually asking America to be America, which is the question that James Baldwin posed uh, so long ago. And for me, that's the real question. Are we going to respond to that question, will America be America? And if we're going to respond, what are we going to say? I think what we said this week is no. And we've got to find a ways to change that no into a maybe and that maybe into a yes and then figure out what that means. And I think what it means is dealing more honestly with these issues that we highlight, police violence, uh, a criminal justice system that's biased, a failure to talk about our history honestly. And, and that's where I see the great challenge lying, you know, is can we find a way to kind of organize and begin to talk honestly about what we have to do? Can we act hopefully? Can we act in a way that actually tries to honor the best parts of what it means to be committed to justice? Or are we going to just kind of keep watching as if it's all some big reality show? That's not a healthy way to move forward. I'm pretty sure there's nothing else that should be said after that. <laughs> I want to thank Brian Stevenson, Raul Peck, and Ezra Edelman for joining me at Doc NYC. 13th is now playing on Netflix. OJ Made in America is available on ESPN and iTunes. I Am Not Your Negro will be released theatrically by Magnolia Pictures in February. You can hear my previous interviews with those directors in the library of pure nonfiction, Ezra Edelman on episode 10, Raul Peck on episode 21, and Ava DuVernay on episode 26. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. Thanks to our team, series producer, Michael Scotty Jr., sound mixer, Kyle Murphy, web designer, Cross Strategy, marketing coordinator, Sarah Modo, social media maven, Jordan Smith, and executive producer, Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.